Welcome to the Dirty Lie Podcast, a podcast about facts, figures, and weird things from the past. I'm your host, Dez, and I'm here with my co-host, TMT. Welcome to the podcast. Each week, I give my co-host, Tim Tayo, three quote-unquote facts, and he has to figure out what is true and what is a dirty lie. What is the dirty lie? What has actually happened in history? Please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the bell so that you get notified every time we drop an episode and you don't miss out on anything. If you're about to listen, please just subscribe. You can always, you know, come back and unsubscribe if you don't like it, but please subscribe first. Thank you. Do it right now. Right now. Hit the button. (laughs) Let's go. Hi. Welcome to this week's episode of the Dirty Live Podcast. I'm Des and I'm Timmy Tayo and I'm a Gemini. And I'm a Cancerian. I'm a Cancer. That's why we get along so well. Mm-hmm. Tim Tao's birthday is exactly two weeks before mine. Yeah. Fun fact. Fun fact. Anyways, let's stop talking about ourselves. We're talking about history. Yeah, we've drawn in the Gen Z. It's time to. <laughs> we got them. <laughs> we got them. <laughs> They're here. <laughs> it's time to talk shop. You probably inspired this episode, but you'd want to know what inspired this episode the most. Um. Fruits. Fruits? Yeah, I'm just taking a wild swing. That was truly wild. Yeah. Oh, because you can't see fruits on my yeah. laptop. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just working with all the information I have. Okay. So everyone listening to this podcast right now, if you have a phone near you or your laptop, open it up, go to Google and start typing British genocide in and just look at the drop down menu okay so you want them to type british genocide in and then look at this and wait for the suggestion yeah i I actually took a picture the suggestions i got oh my god um british genocide in kenya read the next one bengal iran canada ireland australia tasmania malaysia scotland (laughs) you know um they say racism this and that but the british empire really didn't care everyone was worth it if you had a country, if you were a fair game. You were a fair game to them. This tiny island. It's crazy. It's actually crazy. Uh, so, yeah, you inspired this because of last week's episode. Because I was thinking about the fall of the British Empire after World War Two, mm. And where else colonial subjects who had fought for them, where else did they go back home take it in and turn that uh, knowledge and experience on the field into into like independence fights Mm -hmm. so we are going to can guess which country it's in africa Mm. which is genocide in guess um let me see rwanda kenya kenya we're going to Kenya. Yesterday we were sitting out with our friends drinking wine talking about Kenya. Kenya, that's true. Um, and Mombasa mm. and Nairobi. You've been, right? I have. I have not, actually. I loved Kenya. It's, this is actually... So I remember when I was in primary school, my dad was like, we're going on summer vacation and I was super excited. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, the whole family is going. Mm-hmm. What, where are we going to? And he was like, we're going to Kenya. Mm. And I was like, um, as in Africa? Oh, dear. I was like, Dad, is this really what we're doing? <laughs> like, he was so excited to tell us. And like now I look back and kids are horrible. I mean, I was the horrible kid in that moment. Mm. But kids are horrible. No, kids are bad. It, They're just bad. This man worked real hard, got these tickets, got time off of work, super excited. And it's like, we're going to Kenya, yay. And I was like, 
bro, what happened to Disneyland? Like, <laughs> what are you? Why did? But then, yeah, I did go to Kenya, and it was—I would say—one of my best memories of like ever of growing up. It's—it was an amazing experience. We went to the Maasai, um, and we went to Mombasa, which is the Indian Ocean. Mm. It's very beautiful there. Yeah, I heard they have incredible beaches. They have in absolutely incredible beaches in Mombasa, and then you go to the Maasai. You have the safari. We lived in the you know the whole experience. Wakanda, basically. Yeah, basically. You have like the the herd, and yeah. then the nighttime. I can't remember what it's called, but you would literally it like comes up to the reserve. Like mm. we weren't in like a hotel somewhere. We were like in the Maasai. Mm. Um, it was awesome. It was like the, like, the Maasai. Yeah. I think a tribe. Yes. So that's the you have the Maasai tribe, mm-hmm. and then you have like the Maasai Mara. I okay. believe is the area, mm. and you also have a Mount Kilimanjaro around there. Mm. And then I also went to Nairobi, which was like Lagos. Like mm. my only memory of Nairobi was. Like it's giving Lagos. It's giving. I didn't leave my house. <laughs> it's giving. I travel all these hours just to go somewhere that looks exactly like home. Um, mm. But yeah, so if I don't know, I'm doing tourism for Kenya right now. Do we need, do we need visas to go to Kenya? I don't know because you know I'm American. Um, so I just. Okay. I'm sorry. All I right. just. Do, right. I okay. don't. Okay, this <laughs> Jesus, he had that one loaded, just waiting. <laughs> She's like, one day he'll ask me, he'll ask me about a visa situation, and I will. What a v- What is that? Oh my god! Oh my god! You have to line up and stuff, don't you? I wonder what would happen, like, you know, just on the um, foreign policy level. Every country just decided, yeah, I think Americans need visas to come here now. If every single country just decided that, what would that be like? What would, what, what would America You're say? saying that and I'm misty-eyed. Like, mm. I, like I, I can't cry thinking about that. Like, anytime I think about the requirements for visas, like some, you know, my friends like, oh, I need a bank statement from myself and then maybe my family, then my mm. business, and then I need my mm. deed and my lease and the, the doctor who delivered me as a child. Like, I'm like, all these all of this. All of these. All of these things. To <laughs> travel, it is di- what is going on it's there? Crazy. Okay, but let's get into this week's episode. Um, are you ready for your... Yeah, I'm talking about um, Real Housewives star Kenya more. Is that a Real Housewives star? Yeah. Okay. Kenya. I mean, as, you know, as much as... Is she the one that's dating the Nigerian guy now? I think that's Portia. That's Portia. Yeah. Why do you... Because <laughs> I'm Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I've never seen an episode of Real Housewives. I just... Instagram. And I, yeah. I haven't either. Yeah. Okay. So, this week's facts. Okay. Number one. When the British left Kenya after Kenya won independence, they took with them thousands of files that contained information about what they had done to quell the Mau Mau rebellion and uprising in Kenya. And they burned some of these files and they threw them out of planes. Mm. Um, Okay. That's fact number one. Fact. Fact number two. The British made essentially concentration camps and prisoner of war camps um, for the Kikuyu, which is the main tribe involved in the Mau Mau rebellion, and also just put up barbed wire fences around whole villages for years. And fact number three, when the British first came to Kenya in the 1880s, 1890s, they met Arabs there, they met Indians there, and the Arabs outnumbered the British, like the white people, two to one. 
and they used to use dirhams as their currency in Kenya. The official currency of Kenya was dirhams before the British came. So those are your facts. Um, just because number one and two seem very, very, very plausible, I'm going to pick number three as the lie. You win. They were actually outnumbered by Indians two to one. Mm. And the currency was... The rupee. Rupee. Rupee? Rupee. Oh, the ru- is the rupee like Russian or something? I don't know. That's like a ruble or something. Yeah, ruble. Ruble. Yeah, yeah. that's sounds... I combined them. You, <laughs> 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 you did. The Indian rupee was Kenya's main currency at the turn of the 20th uh, century. Mm. Um Okay, so what I'm going to do is I will give some background to British colonization in Kenya. And then I'll give some background to give color to my facts. Um, but I'm not going to fully go into the Mau Mau Rebellion mm. because it is... We'll sleep here. And we both have dates tonight. Not with each other, guys. With other people. Yeah, we have dates with <laughs> other people. <laughs> so. Speaking of Kenya, have you seen Black Panther? Yes. Was it good? Wakanda forever. Okay, I guess <laughs> I guess that's a yes. It was amazing, but the worst part of that whole movie mm-hmm. was that I watched it in a cinema mm-hmm. in Lagos yeah. with Nigerians. Yeah. Who are the worst people in the world? To watch movies with. What was that? You know, I found like there's no middle ground on it. People really like it. Or they really hate it. They really people like, go, like people like the noise and the how distracting Nigerians can be in the cinema. Oh. So they like the I c- I would would say like that would work for a comedy. Like mm-hmm. if it's like pure comedy, like a chief daddy, yeah, I would love that. Probably. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but like there are parts of that movie where I mean I'm fond of crying, but I was actually crying. Mm-hmm. Like I was emotional. There were emotional parts of that movie. And people were like laughing to be cheeky and all of that. Yeah, I'm making comments. Or like gisting. Like I'm pretty sure there were some friends there who yeah. were just like gisting. I'm like, why are you here? Like yeah. I I don't understand. Who comes to the cinema to gist? Yeah. I don't even think they were discussing the movie. It just seemed like they were just Yeah. Gisting in a what? Some people say, Oh well, you know, the people that are making noise paid money to see the movie just like you. And it's just such faulty logic. And because it's like we we all paid money to see the film. To like, see the film. Oh. Not to hear people just just for it's it's literally two hours of your entire day like shut up yeah it's just what? so I, I have to go watch it again yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll probably so watch it again I have to go watch it again so the British East African Company was granted a charter in 1888 to go to Kenya and make Kenya British property um, the Britons saw their lands in Kenya they were like their lands are beautiful um, they are very well placed for trading. Uh, they were trying to build a railway because Britain was already in Uganda at this point in time. But when Britain first got to Kenya, they received some very strong opposition. The Maasai and until they killed them off with smallpox, not by, you know, actually killing them. So the Maasai got smallpox, they got cattle disease in the late 1800s. So they became much weaker mm. and they also had like their own kind of Maasai civil war against like two rival chiefs. Mm. So their forces grew considerably weaker. Britain enters. It's prime time for England to come in and take the land. The as, English. Yeah, take the land as they do. So when they come, this is what I'm saying, they were outnumbered two to one. There were approximately 23,000 Indians in Kenya. Wow. 
and only about 10,000 whites. And they're like, okay, we need to make money off of the land. So they give leases to British subjects, like the white people, 999 year leases over huge swaths of land. This is not empty land, by the way. You had a lot of people living there. And a lot of these people were mostly the Kikuyu tribe. Um, they're central they're from central Kenya, like central area mm-hmm. of Kenya. And a lot of the land um you had was called like the the like highlands, a lot of the very like rich land with rich soils. Those were obviously given to white settlers and you had the Kikuyu losing a lot of their land at that point in time. Mm. Now, in terms of acreage, I think the Maasai people lost the most land, like by acres. Mm. But in terms of like, um, I think like fertile land and stuff, I think the Kukuyu lost the most. But essentially what is going on is what happens, they come in and we didn't have this in Nigeria. Which, so it's a very, it's very interesting to see how a settler colony functions. Yeah, I was, you know that's all I, I, I could think about while you were talking. Like, how do they just? Did they just show up with guns and like, hey, guys, yeah. we're here now? And oh, so I have I was, a quote actually. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to paraphrase. The MPs were arguing in the British Parliament about like, I guess, more money to go into some other part of Africa, the scramble for Africa. And MP said that the person who had benefited the most from Britain in Africa was Maxim, the guy who created the Maxim gun. Mm, The the machine gun. Machine gun, yeah. Yeah. You know, the British actually took the Maxim machine gun and killed a whole bunch of Ijebu people because Ijebu was an important... um, much at point but this is like, that's a whole different story but mm. the maxim gun like they use it in nigeria they used it in japan they used it everywhere everywhere yeah, everywhere, yeah. but they, yeah i remember reading about them using it against ijebu people and i took that very personally because i am ijebu and Billy and i am ijebu as well my mom's ijebu really yeah. how do i not know this i don't know that's Never, so weird oh yeah it's always called Yanni Badaboy. But I'm Ijebu and Bini, and like, I mean, everyone suffered under British colonial rule, but just knowing that my people personally suffered personal huge losses. Like, what Ijebu was before they brought their Maxim guns, it's not even that even yeah. today. I like, mean, being Bini and Ijebu is kind of crazy. Like, you've actually suffered at the hands of. <laughs> I mean, I'm Oyo, so it's yeah. like, you know, I guess we've all been through it, but. But God. <laughs> at least they don't keep, like, my arts in museums and, and make. <laughs> straw man logic arguments of why they deserve deserve to hold on to it bro honestly being Ijebu and Vini like anyways mm. let's 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 go back to Kenya because what they did to the Kenyans mm. so they've come they've taken their land and they have all this land now and no one to work on it so they're like let's the first thing they do in 1902 a hut tax everyone has to pay tax on every hut they own so they were just making up taxes, um, just like random taxes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So first of all, tax all 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 taxes are made up. Like if you yeah. think about yeah. it, all, all taxes are made up. Are they building the huts for them? No, these are not new huts. These are not. This is basically what they also tried to do in the east. They just come in, and that's why about women racked. Like mm. you're coming, and you're coming, and you're saying, "Okay, we're gonna start counting you as part of the census, so you, we can tax you." And you're like, "You're taxing our husbands off of what we already make because we're making family income, mm-hmm. and then you want to tax us for that same income. Then you want to come. Imagine a British colonial soldier, uh, subject or some Nigerian that they're paying 
coming to your house and counting you have five chicken you have four yam quivers you have like what are you and especially like when you're bringing absolutely nothing nothing you're not bringing this you you don't own it it's literally this hot tax because a lot of taxes are coming after this by the way mm. but the first one when i first saw the hot tax i just i just like put my laptop down and i was like um mm. would you say it hurts your feelings <laughs> bro i was so angry like it, it's very hard to contemplate how we are even alive because i just feel like if i was around back then i would have gotten myself killed because i would have just been fuming i'll just day. have been fighting every day like what do you mean i'm paying tax on a hut i built mm. on land i owned up until you came here now you're telling me what's what so essentially they start putting all these taxes after the hot tax there's like Two years later, they make another tax. Um, so the term Commonwealth is just irritating to me right now. It's oh, in my head and wow. it's, it's kind of just pissing me off. Oh, wow. This episode is going to be very stressful for me to get through. I'm just getting I'm sorry. really angry. Why do, do we play in the Commonwealth games, Nigeria? Uh, yes. Well, so rad for that. I mean, well, every, just every yeah. Commonwealth country now plays now. Remember, we boycotted it to help South Africa. Mm, I remember. Okay, so they do this hot tax. Now, the punishment for not paying tax is fines and the only way you can pay this tax or these fines now is to go and work for white people who took your land the goal the infantry at this point they still needed more you know that's like they're impoverishing people who were not poor before mm-hmm. it's a bit mad because they might not have been exceptionally wealthy but they were actually okay yeah actually they were wealthy in ways that that we can't have today they had peace they had their houses they had their families they had their land they had food on their table they were trading sometimes so the indians they, were, were there just trading they weren't were they stressing um, them out were the indians stressing the kukui out yeah or the like native the Ken- africans, the native africans, africans at this point in time i'm not entirely sure because i honestly did not focus on that part of it because mm-hmm. i thought we could do an episode on indians in africa um when i learned that the largest population of indians outside of india south africa yeah. yeah durban largest city apparently is durban it's durban in south africa but i know that you had indians especially in east africa in kenya kenya was an important trading route and they had already had you know they have a lot of indian influences in their food and mm-hmm. uh, arabic influences they'd been already trading with these people and i guess using their currency living amongst them for years hundreds of years before the british came mm-hmm. and another thing is like the british were not the first to europeans to come the portuguese came at some point in time mm-hmm. and they wanted to go further inland because you know they're just at the coast um where most of the trade happens but the maasai actually st- would stop them from going further inland so it's really when the maasai kind of crumble that kenya kind of crumbles with, yeah with it. when they crumble it internally yeah but also due to the illnesses the white people brought, brought yeah because the one thing they're gonna come with some smallpox bro <laughs> let me not say some racist some some very racist thing about bus come out my mouth let me zip it up let, let, let's keep it pushing so you have british settlers looking for cheap labor and in order to do this Im- impoverishing people giving them tax they introduce a poll tax which every single citizen had to pay so now they're just putting things on your head like you just wake up one day little john goes to the market square and says you are now going to have to pay me 200 pounds every week i'm just making up this number mm. but like why <laughs> and now i have to go and find a horrible job mm. so that i can pay you this money 
for me existing in my own home which i have always existed in this is this uh, it was hard for me to get yeah. to i'm not going to lie it's actually hard to process it is very hard to process colonial colonial taxation is a it, i mean that's what they did to Bini. Mm. they went to Bini city they went to Bini city and they said you are now going to pay me more taxes and the oba of Bini said no i'm not okay so <laughs> You have land, demand for labor increases. You have this pulling, this taxation. But even with all this taxation, they do not have enough workers. So then they start conscripting people and having forced labor. So Kenyans were essentially enslaved mm-hmm. in Kenya in the 1900s. I need everybody to hear this. The British government had enslavement is forced labor forced labor is enslavement we talk about transatlantic slave trade sometimes and when people talk about colonization or, or especially in the diaspora wars and all the back and forth i feel like if we knew more about what they were doing and how they like they were colonizing different areas we would understand they were essentially in effect enslaving kenyans in the 1900s in their own country so every kenyan had to work for 60 days a year for the government for the british government unless they were already employed by british settlers that's crazy every 60 days so you had to at least like you literally had to work for them that's slavery yes but then they now created reservations and then they created tribal reservations which also in turn heightened intertribal issues because now tribes who were living closer to each other before were literally put in separate and um reservations so you have your jebu reservation you have your you know reservation like you so you now oh, it's, it's a sick thing to just honestly i can't believe all the things they did to kenya that's why i said we're never touching mama rebellion because mm. if we do we will sleep here <laughs> and then in 1913 so it, it's in 1913 where they give all the white settlers a uh, monopoly on land use and it's essentially what they did in southern rhodesia which is modern day uh, zimbabwe Zim. they also had passes by the way this is i need to you guys know this is not ancient history this is 1920s 30s 1940s they had passes so that they could not desert their work i'm telling you they were slaves so you know like those passes that black people had during apartheid mm-hmm. kenyans had that in kenya um their own passes were called it was called kipande so they introduced it in 1918 to control the movement of labor and to curb desertion slavery and also <laughs> so they've taken the land and they're growing c- cash crops even today a lot of things come out of kenya coffee tea flowers you have cash crops right and okay imagine you're a native and you're like okay i'd make a lot more money instead of growing yam this i can grow tea oh did they let them do that no 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 (laughs) the white people only the white people (laughs) could grow the cash crops they allowed a few people to do it but they uh they basically did not allow them grow the crops that would make them wealthy on their own land from their own labor. Because they needed them to be slaves, so why would they? Yeah. You'd literally create a, a class of impoverishment which did not exist 
so you can get cheap labor so you can become wealthy now i've given you a bit of background i put my laptop down i've given background on what britain is doing in kenya giving background on how they're suffering people are you guys when i tell you that i'm really giving you baby background like introductory course this is n- this is not a first day of class i haven't even given you the food juice this is so it gets so much worse it basically. gets so much worse but i'm going to fast forward a bit because this is actually what brought me here mau mau rebellion world war ii happens and um you have kenyans who also fought in india malaysia etc right and so you have a lot of anti-colonial sentiment happening happening in the 1940s because now what happened in nigeria they took our farmers were made to produce food right they put us on food rations we're not even eating the food that our farmers were producing on our land they were sending it to europe mm. in kenya the landowners were white their laborers were Kenyans. They were essentially becoming absolutely wealthy mm. during the war. On their plantations. On their plantations. And because they became so wealthy during the war. Because also now you've had, you have forced labor. You even had like three different types of forced laborers. So you, you'd have your squatters, you have your, like they gave them different uh, differentiations on that, the ID pass on the Kipande. Okay. Right? Is it like a rank thing? Um, yeah. So you have different rights. You have settlers, then you have squatters, and I can't remember what the last one is. But essentially, you have it's it's like a ranking of like who can stay where or something. So some people were called squatters, and then they made it legal for the white people to force the people who they caught on their land to work for them. So honestly, I'm, I'm sorry, but you guys, I I'm, I keep I feel like I keep saying I'm sorry, but I it's very upsetting what they did in kenya and to kenya but anyways so the kikuyu tribe was seen as probably like the according to the white settlers there they thought they had elevated the kikuyu because they were the ones who were mostly um, employed by the whites they were employed a lot of them were their domestic staff so their maids and their cooks would be kikuyu a lot of the laborers on their farms were kikuyu so they thought like these are our faves you know they were probably the ones who got them like rights to grow cash crops maybe yes yes it was this it was the the limited rights it was given to some kikuyu um tribesmen the loyal uh, servants of the colonial masters were the ones who were giving preferential treatment but not Mm. all kikuyu but they were mostly kikuyu right so the white people were like you know they was they even gifted them a a a bible one presbyterian church gifted them like one leather-bound bible a lot of them were christians um so they were closest you know they were close they're living you know live close together but then after the war the white settlers got really really rich and were like well i'm gonna use my money to now buy machinery tractors it's the you know in the age of money and machines post world war ii and which means i'm going to fire all these laborers who i made poor so they would have to work for me but who now i no longer need and they will now be poor homeless and jobless in their own land yes so around the 1940s 1950s you have huge thousands of young kikuyu men who before the whites came had land before the whites came were not poor before the whites came were living life 
were now impoverished, landless, and jobless. A lot of them moved into the slums of Nairobi. A lot of them had, like, again, this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. And you have to understand that they entered in 1898. So this is less than a hundred years was like this is happening in one generation of mm-hmm. enslavement and conscription and forced labor and taxes and the removal of their agency disenfranchisement um you know and also i was listening to a historian who was saying that it was also affecting essentially their manhood mm. because in order to marry as a kikuyu you must own land so that your wife can go back to your land cultivate your property raise your children have us like you need land to be able to marry you cannot marry as a landless man so they could not marry so the stage is set really mm-hmm. for the mau mau rebellion and then guess what what god you're not gonna believe this but you are going to believe this you had kenyans who had fought for the british in ceylon ceylon is today sri lanka I believe um somalia and burma with our burma boys from nigeria and when they returned to kenya they were not paid uh their dues the veteran dues or the money they were promised they did not receive any recognition for their service whereas their british counterparts were awarded medals and received land sometimes from the kenyan veterans they were awarded land kenyan land sometimes owned by kenyan veterans that is insane how was that even i guess there were no laws they just made their laws as they went they actually sued in the 1920s uh kenyans actually sued the british government on this land matter in kenya the supreme court said it was legal what they were doing it was legal it was not illegal mm. but 1920s the uh, supreme court kenya who do you think is overseeing that court so the british government <laughs> Yeah. yeah so this is this is something that a lot of times like i feel like i need to as lawyers i mean we're very privy to this not every law like you you can have something that is legal and absolutely immoral, immoral. you can have something that's absolutely immoral and not illegal mm-hmm. and we've seen from how laws are made by men everywhere in the world from america to here how they are made and unmade and written and unwritten Mm -hmm. that laws are a product of human beings it's not some supreme thing that is like an arbiter of like what's good or bad is the legal system it really depends on who wrote it where or who's running the country yeah who's supposed to serve So yeah, you have the Mau Mau Rebellion begin in earnest when, so a lot of these uh, veterans, the reason why I brought veterans because a lot of them joined an organization called the Kenyan African Study Union. It changes its name to the Kenyan African Union in 1946. Um, A lot of the members were veterans, as I said, and they had fought for the British and they had come back and been treated like dirt underneath their feet. I mean, as part of this Kenyan-African Union, you have a militant arm that forms. Now, I'm going to talk about the Kikuyu and what's going on here. You have a... It's sort of actually... You can kind of draw a parallel with what happens in South Africa with the ANC and Nkonto, where you have a more militant wing of the party form. Who are you younger boys? Who are more aggy, more aggressive? Who want to play more into violent... They want to fight it out. Mm-hmm violently and you have older more conservative members of the party being like that's not the way to go let's be more civil and in the broader kikuyu community 
you have people who are benefiting sort of mm-hmm. uh, they're the colonial chiefs they've been made chief by the british they're benefiting from colonial rule and you also have people who like the status quo for one reason or the other so you even have so you have a lot of divisions that are forming in the community and then you have these guys who can't marry can't work have no money can't eat who are like these white people need to get out and that is how the Mau Mau rebellion forms. So the Mau Mau forms out of this um, violent wing of the KAU. Mm. Mau Mau was a name that was first actually coined by the British, but then they co- sort of took the name for themselves. What does the name actually mean? Yeah, I knew that. Was, I was going to ask that. Yeah. So uh, people are not sure of the etymology. Some people think it's like an anagram because Amu Amu means get out, get out. And they say that, like, you know, they. In Ki- yeah, yeah, they essentially change it from Amamu to uh, Uma Uma <laughs> to Mau Mau, but basically like an anagram. But yeah, basically like an anagram of uh, Kikuyu words. Some people say it means our grandfather. Some people mean think it means something else. But the, the actually, from what I've heard or read, it's that get out, get out uh, mm. anagram that people think it is the most. But yeah, so you had Mau Mau rebellion, and the first white person who was killed was like a white lady but the people who they mostly killed were other kikuyu people who were helping the white people you have to think about it like when you kill the ones you can get some they were killing the loyalists and then the loyalists formed their own military wing so you had colonial police who were fighting alongside what was called the home front and this home front was essentially other members of their tribe or other tribes who were fighting for British? for the British? What was the incentive to fight for the British? Well, guess money. Yeah, you know, some of them were elevated to like you know how in Nigeria how they elevated um, that lady, that first uh, woman king, Ahebu Bagbe, mm. for example. She have never been king of Enugu Ezekiel. The British did not exist. They created chiefs who then have their own little fiefdoms who were handed to them by the British. And you also have some of them getting some of this tax money or getting some land or getting some deals. They're working with the whites and maybe some of them were just Anglophiles, who knows. But you do have a class of people who are benefiting from colonial rule and then you have a majority of people who are not benefiting from colonial rule um, who have been dispossessed of their lands and who are subject to violence. So most of the people who were killed were colonial police, um, home front and Mau Mau rebels. Now, I'm not going to talk about the actual rebellion. I might leave that for another episode because it is a lot to sink your teeth into and I don't want to gloss over it. But if anyone is interested, I think it's something. It is definitely something you should get into because the Mau Mau were branded as terrorists, obviously, by the British. And they were called very crazy things on the side there's a lot of british propaganda that was happening around the world like mau mau came to represent a terror and a violence and a depravity mm. and like an african brutal like like an african brute is the, essentially what the mau mau came to represent but in their fight to gain independence some of the atrocities that they were supposedly committed were horrific mm. but on the other side the british were like committing their own 100%. atrocities 
and sometimes it takes a monster to take down a monster yeah <laughs> yes so the reason i'm not giving you guys a lot of specifics about the mama rebellion is because i want to leave it for another episode but it does start in october of 1952 when britain declared a state of emergency and they were fighting a forest war against the mama rebellion about 20,000 strong forces as well as covert like other tactics using other tactics but the, these forest battles they would just flatten land like sort of what america did in vietnam indiscriminate bombing so like okay that's a kikuyu village over here bombed wow yeah okay so obviously they killed tens of thousands mm. but i'm gonna tell you why they got rid of those files because they did that mm. that truth i'm gonna tell you what they were trying to hide what did they do so first of all they had a reported eighty thousand detainees and they would torture them using what was called a dilution technique they would isolate them torture them and force them to work this was the systematic technique against all kiwi people the dilution technique isolation torture and forced labor they had a handbook on it. It was in a blue folder that was found by a Harvard historian in like the 2000s. Uh, she won a Pulitzer. She wrote a book on it called Britain's Gulag because she talks about the systematic, what she feels is genocide of the Kikuyu people by Britain in Kenya. And she talks about this dilution technique in detail. Um, and this is, this is after World War II. Okay. Yeah. So like these guys just learned nothing. What were they fighting for at this point? Because it wasn't fertile land, and no, I mean like when when you think about like Allied forces and their supposed fights, oh, oh. (laughs) it was just it wasn't a moral thing for them. It was just Mm. like I guess we're fighting Nazis now. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, horrible. Because how do you how do you create your own concentration camps after World War Two? It's insane. Actually, yeah. I didn't even think about it like that, actually. That's what I was thinking about. Like, surely this was like the 1800s or something. But no, it's... Like, there are people alive that were born then that are still alive. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, there were people that were born when this was happening. That, that are still, still alive, alive today? Now. Yeah. Yeah. There are people whose grandparents and grandparents grew up in essentially detention camps. Like, or yeah, concentration like camps and reservations. Like, and reservations. Like, they grew up in a barbed wired village. That was their life. So the lady who wrote this book, her name is Elkins. Um, it's called Britain's Gulag. In America, it's called something else, but the book mm. is called Britain's Gulag. Um, she says that she doesn't believe those camps held 80,000 80, detainees, as the British official figures say. But she thinks it's closer to between 160 to 320,000 detainees. Mm. She also came to understand colonial authorities herded Kikuyu women and children into some 800 enclosed villages dispersed across the countryside. 800 enclosed villages dispersed across the countryside because, as we said, isolate, torture, forced to work. They isolate them, they enclose the village, and they force them to work. These camps were essentially detention camps and they were heavily patrolled. They were cordoned off by barbed wires and barbed wire fences, spiked trenches and watchtowers. Jesus, that's a concentration camp. And the Kikuyu suffered forced labor, disease, starvation, torture, rape and murder. Britain, I'm going to read a quote 
from Britain's Gulag. I've come to believe that during the Mau Mau War, British forces wielded their authority with a savagery that betrayed a perverse colonial logic. Only by detaining nearly the entire Kikuyu population of 1.5 million people and physically and psychologically atomizing its men, women and children could colonial authority be restored and this civilizing mission reinstated. She says she uncovered a murderous campaign to eliminate Kikuyu people, a campaign that left tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, dead. So, have the British come out and officially said anything about this? Yes, no. So, this lady, this Harvard research lady, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about what the British Britain has said, but just know that they were forced to do it as usual. But so, this lady writes this explosive book. Before she, she writes this book, well, some historians argue that it's only explosive to people who don't know history. Yeah, but which or is mostly or right? who aren't yeah, yeah, like or who don't know African history mm-hmm. or Kenyan history. Mm-hmm. So she says that. The history of Africa is like a boys' club. They're all Oxford and Cambridge scholars, and I'm a girl from New Jersey who went to Harvard, and so they don't like me taking up space. I feel like it's probably a bit of both. I don't know, but they were like trashing her book. But then she also got a Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. But then she also kind of centered herself in the book, which is weird. Weird. Mm, she's white. Like, I guess it's, 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 yeah. yeah. But she did some amazing research. The book was a combination of nearly a decade of research. She apparently speaks casual, like Swahili or something. And she researched. And in her research, she found uh, that the British kept detailed files on each of the official 80,000 detainees, right? But when she went to go and look for those files, she only found like a few hundred files. She's like, it should be at least 240,000 files. Like, where are the files? And her book like causes a lot of noise. And you have Mau Mau, former Mau Mau rebels who are suing the British government, who then use her book and call her as a witness in court. And she went? Yes. Of course she went. This is 2013. Ooh, okay. This is recent times. This is very recent, Now, Britain tried to get the case thrown out. They were like, first of all, we're not responsible. It was the British colonial government in Kenya. So now the Kenyan government are responsible. In The Hague or? No, this is in England. Okay. So let me give you a little brief on this court case. On the 6th of April, 2011, the Royal Courts of Justice in London are abuzz because the Mau Mau, ex-Mau Mau rebels are trying to sue the British for, you know, what they did. In preparation for the case, Elkins distilled her book, this Brit- uh, Britain's book, Gulag book, into a 78-page witness statement. The claimants in this case were some of the people she had interviewed in Kenya. One man, Paolo Nzili, said that he had been castrated with pliers at a detention camp. Another a lady called Jane Mutoni Mara reported being sexually assaulted with a heated glass bottle. Jesus. Their case made the same case that the book had made, that Britain's role in Kenya was a systematic violence against detainees, that it was sanctioned by their authorities, British authorities, and that they did so with full knowledge. And as you see, after World War Two, crazy stuff. <sighs> Now, just as the hearings were set to begin, a story broke in the Times. It was splashed across the front page. 
it's revealed that there has been a 50-year cover-up by the British government. Before they left Kenya, they destroyed a lot of documents, they flew some out, they set a hundreds on fire, and... It's like, you know when in Wolf of Wall Street, when the FBI is reading, <laughs> and they're just shredding documents. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But it's the British government. It's the British government. It's, it's the British government. And guess what? They did this in all their colonies. So they have, anyways, this is, this is what, this is what. <laughs> There's a story on the front page about, on the Times, about the British government's attempts to mount a cover-up following a massacre of unarmed prisoners during the 1950s Mau Mau rebellion, right? Or during the war. And that the documents which contained the information had been held in a secret mi5 and mi6 archive for 50 years now these files were a hundred linear feet worth of storage a hundred feet worth of storage of documents uh, of what they did in kenya this is what the kids call nasty work (laughs) this is nasty work (sighs) you know my favorite thing about british people Mm -hmm. is that when they are really incompetent yeah there's always one of them that is like kind of competent and you just there's this look on their face and this emotion they carry around and it just makes me really happy like that when, like a white person knows that white people are useless <laughs> <laughs> now do you know the british did you had british ministers that were talking about the deaths on the camps and said that oh the reason why all these unarmed prisoners are just dying is because they were drinking contaminated water Mm. knowing full well that the water was served to them no they were beaten to death oh yeah but like even if they were drinking contaminated water who gave them the water no they said that they drank contaminated water by mistake whatever Ah. they had beaten 11 men this is one incident where they had beaten 11 men to death and you had the minister the British government is well aware that they beat 11 men to death. And you have the minister coming out and saying they drank contaminated water. And then writing this down, this is what I love about white people, even the, and writing all of this down, and somebody flies this and stores it in, what's the name of this, their storage place? These files were stored in a place called Hanslope Park in London. <laughs> the thing about it is that like, the British took so many files when they left mm-hmm. that Kenya actually asked for some files and the British government was like, oh, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like Kenya sent archivists to London to, get to ask for these migrated files. And the British government was like, what are you talking about? The term migrated files is crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently the, the they called it the migrated archives and the Kenya's chief archivist, how do you say that? Mm-hmm. said that his delegation was systematically and deliberately misled in its meetings with British diplomats and archivists. Then, a whole 1,500 files. 1,500 files. Imagine getting a plane to carry 1,500 files out of Kenya and dumped in Hanslope Park. This is actually ridiculous. By the way, Hanslope Park... Houses files from 37 former colonies. And they're still there? Yes. Good. <laughs> I said good. Can someone pay me money to do a Hanslope mini doc? Send me the money. I'll do it. I want to see what's on those files. 
I want to see what is on those files. I would actually that would make a great show, just visiting and seeing what, see what we can come up with. Mm-hmm. So that the whole thing about the files, that's true. And the reason why they were throwing these files out is because they were killing people. You had watchtowers over remote encircled villages. You had people being beaten to death. You even had exchanges in these files. So on these files, you um, the files are now available to the public, by the way. They're at the National Archives in southwest London. And the reason is because of this case. The case gets resolved in 2013, but I don't want to. I don't want to jump. I want to give you some some info about the files. Among the files are a series of exchanges between Sir Evelyn Baring, the governor of Kenya, and Alan Lennox Boyd, the secretary of state for the colonies, in March 1959. In one of the first exchanges sent after the massacre that happened in the prison, this is what the governor of Kenya, i.e., the whites guy sir baring says he says that men had died after they had drunk water from a water cart he said although some of the dead were suffering from some slight bruising following a scuffle there is not the slightest indication that any force was used or that their bruises had any connection with their death when in fact prison officers and guards had been authorized to beat Mau Mau detainees if they refused to carry out work at the country's prison camps with the colony's attorney general Eric Griffith Jones rewriting local law in order to decriminalize such assaults so there's like not one good person amongst them there's just like this British colonial people this is their attorney general you have a British attorney general called Eric Griffith Jones writes rewriting law so that these men can be beaten to death if they refuse to be forced to work in these prison camps how is this okay they redrafted the law in secret with Griffith Jones the attorney general warning Baring the governor of kenya and i quote if we are going to sin we must sin quietly jesus that's a warning by the way like this massacre that occurred these men i mean if you're beaten to death it's it's brutal but it is knowing that they were like he saw the post-mortem reports what are they called Autopsy. autopsy okay i think right, it was an american term maybe he saw the autopsy saying they had broken skulls and jaws and he was they were still sitting down planning how they were going to talk about this in england and how they're going to deploy the quote-unquote water cart cover up because they had to face questions in the house of lords from the labor mp barbara castle who was campaigning for an end to the mistreatment of mau mau prisoners so you have a good person Barbara Castle, a Labour MP, but she is not even the person who's the people who the government have put in charge are absolutely horrific. But you do have some people who are back home who are trying to fight for the end of what they know is absolute horrible treatment of the Mau Mau. What was my second fact? The second fact is the one about the labor camps. Okay, so I'm, the I'm villages. Doing well. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I've covered it. You all covered again. both of them. Sorry, you guys. I'm losing my facts because I'm emotional about this, and I'm getting upset, and then I'm trying to pull myself out of my upsetness so I can lead you guys on some sort of journey to, as I say, give you guys a primer because I cannot honestly say that we can cover this all in one episode. We've done a good job. Now you want to know what justice is. Yes. So one of the claimants in the in the courts in the case in 2011 
Wambuga wa Yingi was among the prisoners who had survived the beating at Hola the day that those 11 were massacred. He was among the people who had survived the beatings. And um, the British, after this leak into the press, decided to settle the case. So on the 6th of June, 2013, the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, read a statement in Parliament announcing an unprecedented agreement to compensate 5,228 Kenyans who were tortured and abused during the Mau Mau Rebellion. Each would receive 3,800 pounds, which is, let me not say anything, but I will read part of his statement. The British government recognizes the colonial authorities made unprecedented use of capital punishment and sanctioned harsh prison, so-called rehabilitation regimes. Many of those detained were never tried and the links of many with the Mau Mau were never proven. There was recognition at the time of the brutality of these repressive measures and the shocking level of violence, including an important debate in this house on the infamous events at Hola Camp in 1959. However, I would like to make clear now and for the first time on behalf of Her Majesty's Government that we understand the pain and grievance felt by those who were involved in the events of the emergency in Kenya. The British Government recognises that Kenyans were subject to torture and other forms of ill treatment at the hands of the colonial administration. The British Government sincerely regrets that these abuses took place and that they marred Kenya's progress towards independence. Mr Speaker, this settlement provides recognition of the suffering and injustice that took place in Kenya. We continue to deny liability on behalf of the government and British taxpayers today for the actions of the colonial administration in respect of the claims. We do not believe that claims relating to events that occurred overseas outside direct British jurisdiction more than 50 years ago can be resolved satisfactorily through the courts without the testimony of key witnesses that is no longer available. It is therefore right that the government has defended the case to this point since 2009, and we do not believe that this settlement establishes a precedent in relation to any other former British colonial administration. It was the first time Britain had admitted to carrying out torture anywhere in its former empire. Probably won't be the last to tell you that. Baby, I said Google Britain, genocide in. (laughs) (laughs) I like a good callback. Well, there you have it, folks. That is this week's episode. We will come back to the Mau Mau Rebellion. We'll come back. There's some fighters I want to talk about. Mm. This podcast, like we do try and keep it light, keep it bright, give you guys a primer into history and just get you interested, get you hooked, give you some general knowledge about something you might not know about or might not know something about. Um... Something fantastic happened today. What? West African Weekly released their bat documentary. Mm. From heroin to Asu Rock, I guess. Or maybe, hopefully not. Mm. But uh, it means we don't have to. <laughs> right. But we still will. Uh, be fun. I mean, we, sh- we could. Uh, we don't have to. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about... The court documents. WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. Yeah, okay. baby. You Fair know enough. me and my WikiLeaks. Fair enough. I went in there and just looked at what Tinubu was up to. Wiki kinks. <laughs> right. What do you think Tinubu likes? Him? No, no, sorry. <gasps> sorry. sorry. <laughs> ah, this one. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you guys next week. Have a lovely week. God bless you. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs>
And that is our episode. Please remember to subscribe. You can find us on Instagram at the Dirty Lie Podcast and on Twitter at the Dirty Lie Pod. Um, please remember to subscribe to our shows wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, don't forget to leave comments. They go a long way and they help us, you know, remain able to do this and tell your friends and family about us. Yay. Yeah, we are trying to grow. Thank you very much.